Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I have no um, ability to picture things in my mind. <laughs> I don't. Ezra can be whoever you want him to be. It's then. like a real He's thing. He's like all over YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Glacius. Today we have a, a double, triple stuffed episode. We've got Sarah Cliff, we've got Ezra Klein, but we've also got Dylan Matthews. Hello. Hey. Boom. Boom, yes. Uh, Four we, hosts. We, we have Dylan here because there's a very weedsy topic that has been lurking, uh, but Dylan did the work on it. And this was, uh, we have, for, for the first time in a while, I think a number of different Democrats uh, out there in prominent ways, often running for president, or at least potentially running for president, with some pretty ambitious proposals that are really targeted at poverty and at poor people. Uh, Dylan did a great piece for the site, sort of breaking down five different proposals, looking at what they would do. Uh, and we really wanted to talk about these ideas and talk about that analysis. Um, so we, we brought Dylan on here. And uh, what's going on? Yeah. So what I did, and this is a collaboration with a team at Columbia at the Center on Poverty and Social Policy who did all the numbers. But we looked at five different bills that have all been sponsored or co-sponsored by someone who is running or probably running for president in 2020. And all of them use cash directly to cut poverty. Um, and you can break them into three kind of categories. So Kamala Harris and Sherrod Brown have plans that would massively increase the EITC, which is our existing tax credit for low-income working people. And they'd both expand it so that middle-class people would get it and poor people would get a bigger one. Sherrod Brown and Michael Bennett, who are both looking at running for president, uh, Brown somewhat more seriously, uh, have a plan that would give $3,000 or $3,600 a year to parents, depending on how old their kid is, as a sort of universal child allowance. And then the last category is Cory Booker and Kamala Harris both have bills to give tax credits to people who are renters to subsidize their rents, especially in, in high-cost cities. And so we looked at these five and saw how much each of them would reduce poverty, deep poverty, poverty for kids, um, so that we can sort of judge these proposals not just on how much they cost, but – are they doing this socially important thing that we expect anti-poverty programs to do? And what'd you find? I mean, kind of, can you lay the land of like what this space, like what are these plans going to do if they were enacted? What's a range of sure, options? Sure, sure. So all of them cut poverty by millions of people. Um, and so it's a question of how many millions of people you're cutting. Kamala Harris's EITC plan, it's called the LIFT Act, um, and it technically creates a different, very EITC-like credit <laughs> that is not called the EITC, which is sort of confusing. But it does the most because it's by far the most expensive, that it cuts poverty by about three percentage points or 9.6 million yeah, but people. So, so just to pin that, right, I mean, there's like – there's two different reasons a program could be very effective at sure. cutting poverty, right? Like one is – like a lot of bang for the buck, and the other is a lot of 
bucks. Right? right, exactly. And so and so Lyft Act is just like the biggest. It's just the biggest. It's uh it's about like two point five trillion dollars over ten years. The scale or or somewhat bigger than than the Trump tax cuts. A very, very big program, but also puts a lot of money in the hands of of poor people. What I found most interesting is that if you assume they all cost the same, if you're only interested in bang for the buck, easily the most effective were the rent bills. That Booker's bill and Harris's bill that give money to renters reduce poverty by more than the other ones if you assume they all cost the same, which says some interesting things about who's in poverty. It tells us that that rental costs and housing costs are, are a really big driver of need. Uh, for for people in poverty right now, which helps explain why this has become such a big focus area for a lot of 2020 candidates. And, and something to interject on that real quick that, that I think is interesting about those bills is you can imagine somebody sitting back and saying, well, why should we be subsidizing people to rent? You know, Why should we only give renters help? But of course, we have a massive program, um, the mortgage interest tax deduction, which is a subsidy to people who buy homes. And so the idea that you would, because that has been hard to actually get rid of, I mean, we have at different times like tweaked it a bit, but because it has been very hard to get rid of and because it is just gigantic um, in terms of its annual cost. The idea that we might create a more targeted program to help renters who are more in need and are no less, as far as I can tell, morally worthy of help than homeowners, uh, it, it, it seems like an interesting way to go about that. So much of the conversation about the uh, inefficiencies and inequities in our housing finance are about can we get rid of the mortgage interest tax deduction? And while I know uh, it, it is a, you know, like a an expensive way to to do it that you would just instead pair it with a very big renter subsidy, that might actually be the way to go. Yeah, although, I mean, I think the question from a housing policy perspective about these things is that it it doesn't give you a bigger subsidy based on how poor you are. It gives you a bigger subsidy based on how poor you are relative to the local cost of housing, right? So a person living in New York is going to get a bigger voucher than a somewhat poorer person who's living in Arkansas. Um, and it's not its not a coincidence that that framework would appeal to um, a senator from California and a senator from New Jersey, which are some of the highest cost states that are out there. Uh, but you know, if I was a representative from a low-cost state, I mean, in particular, a low-cost, low-income state, right, like Arizona, like Kentucky, yeah. uh, if I was Joe Manchin in West Virginia, I would be saying like, wait, this is this is crazy. Like, you're reflexively redefining more affluent areas as in more need because a combination of development rules and the high average income has, like, made it challenging for lower income people to get in and like you should give like you should give us money where we're lacking money. And we actually ran the numbers on this. I asked uh, the Columbia folks to to check what someone at say like half the poverty line would get from these rental bills if they lived in New York City versus Phoenix. And in Phoenix they could very plausibly get nothing uh, just cuz rent in Phoenix is very very low and if they're living in Brooklyn they could get a lot. Uh, <laughs> Right. Which, yeah. Just to put a point, uh, like underline what Matt was saying, that there is a lot of horizontal inequity based on where you live and, and what these rental bills give you. And there's, you know, I mean, there's obviously a certain logic to that, right? I mean, this is like one of the impetuses for creating the supplemental poverty measure is to take into account the fact that, you know, 
$10,000 of income is going to get you a sort of different level of real consumption. Based I, mean, on- I think it's interesting, though, in any case, to see the policy discussion moving in this direction. Like you also know, Dylan, like the other thing that's going on is Senator Warren has this proposal to build more affordable housing. But it seems like the policy vogue is switching more towards these like renters subsidies. Like it seems like that is where more the thinking is right now. I'm curious, like looking through these plans, if you found that. Well, and I think the interesting thing about that is that it allows you to build a coalition that includes not just like the low income affordable housing people, but also the poverty people um, that I think people outside the housing world look at Kamala Harris saying she's going to give poor families in Oakland uh, tens of thousand dollars a year in their tax returns uh, to pay for rent and see that as as this super promising anti-poverty policy in a way that they see Liz Warren saying maybe we should build more affordable housing developments uh, in in high cost areas as less directly connected to what they're interested in. But I I think Liz Warren's proposal is interesting in that it it takes after two kind of competing uh, trends in the housing world. So on the one hand, she's very interested in zoning and trying to provide incentives for for local areas to liberalize land use rules, which I know is something Matt talks about a lot and is something the Booker's bill also does. Um, but also the focus on public funding to build more housing is very in vogue in like DSA socialist left discussions. There's a slogan of public housing uh, in my backyard or FIMBY that's that's taken off. And, and really rolls right off the tongue. It's, yeah, not at all trying to piggyback on something else. But yeah, but like the People's Policy Project had a big proposal for how to get more uh, publicly built housing. There's, there's a lot of envy of Red Vienna. Uh, when the city of Vienna built public housing for for large numbers of uh, of middle class people, and so Liz Warren is not proposing that. Like she's right. not gone full socialism, but she, what she's proposing seems more like that to me than the sort of Clinton style tax credits, but a lot bigger. One thing I want to uh, make a point on here: I was reading this piece the other day. It was like one of these pop neuroscience pieces, and it's about the way when you put things into categories, the brain naturally begins to really intensely state distinctions between them. Um, and so we're kind of, you know, we've got the, the this piece that Dylan did, which is great. And we're thinking about these as these five plans and they're on graphs together and some have lines going down further than the others. Uh, these plans are not necessarily in competition. It's, I, I think, actually pretty notable that a number of them share sponsors, right? So Kamala Harris is on two of the plans. Um, I believe uh, Brown is on two of the plans. So in a bunch of cases, these are great tastes to go together. You could have a plan that helped renters and a plan that built more public housing. You could have a plan that helps renters and, as Kamala Harris does, a plan that is a big earned income tax credit that would just help poor people who live in Arizona as well. You could have a plan that is a universal child allowance um, as uh, Brown and Bennett do, and then also a plan that is a big earned income tax credit, which is rewarding work. Uh, And so you could do a lot here, but I think that just something worth doing is you should imagine any of these plans as... I mean, obviously, prioritization happens, but you should imagine any of these plans as planks in an agenda, not as, you know, like, it has to be one plan to rule them all. Well, also, I mean, you know, prioritization does matter, but this is the kind of thing where, I mean, because of the way the reconciliation process works, like, you actually could do a child allowance and an EITC expansion in a single bill, right? Like, there's no, I'm like a big fan of emphasizing prioritization, but like in this particular case, like, you really could take Sherrod Brown's two bills and like, 
add them together and make that be one giant bill and sort of push it through. The the, the housing stuff, I think, is a little different where I do think you sort of have to ask yourself, like, what is our priority here in terms of do you want to tackle this? And if so, right, I mean, Harris's bill is essentially just a tax credit bill, which also could be like thrown onto some kind of uh, like big reconciliation train. Uh, Booker's plan has some effort to change zoning rules and I think has some non-budgetary elements. And Warren's bill, which I think um, is best beloved by housing policy people because it like addresses housing per se rather than as a kind of a a peg for income support is a much more um, policy ambitious concept that I think you would actually have to say like this is what we're working on now rather than than something else. Um, but you know, I mean, in particular, it feels to me like I mean, there's a reason Sherrod Brown has bills on both of these subjects, but the child allowance and EITC are sort of natural complements to each other because child allowance does a lot to sort of help the poor but would probably depress labor force participation somewhat. Um, EITC boosts the poor um, a lot but also increases labor force participation. So, you know, doing both, you kind of like to an extent like hold neutral family structure type stuff while giving a, a lot of extra income. I would also say that if you're combining these and and Ezra's absolutely right. And, and I think in particular, the child allowance one, basically every senator who is considering running for president is co-sponsored. I, I wrote some some post asking why people hadn't co-sponsored it. And then like a day or two later, Booker and Harris co-sponsored it. I'm not going to claim. Dylan Matthews gets results. <laughs> <laughs> I just annoy people until they take minimal actions. Um, but uh, The crucial Dylan Matthews. I, re I remember when the note used to cover the crucial invisible Dylan Matthews primary. <laughs> oh, yes. The note when I was in middle school. Um, but uh Klobuchar is on board with it. Um, Warren is on board with it. So I think like it's fair to say that a child allowance will be part of the 2020 Democratic platform. But if you're combining these things, like our existing system for how to deal with children in the tax code is a mess. Like we have the EITC, which is different from the child tax credit, but is still based on how many kids you have. And then we also we used to have personal exemptions and now we just have the child tax credit, but we also have the child development tax credit and the child development broad credit. And like there's no sense in which these are working together in a clean or sensical way. And I think there is a danger if you just pass these things as individual bills that you would make a system that's even more of a mess and even more confusing to navigate as an actual person who wants to get help for your family. And so I would hope, like, especially as we leave, if after we leave the primary in a year or two, um, that we would start to to think about ways to to combine these into sort of a coherent way of helping families and low income people. Well, on, on that note, I mean that that's something that I think is actually important here, and it, it's one reason I'm excited to see a bunch of these bills coming from people running for president because what we have here are a bunch of bills that are in different ways about poverty, and they're they're end up doing and saying a bunch of interesting things. I mean, something that, that your piece makes clear, Dylan, which I thought was fascinating and did not expect, was that the reason the bill is helping renters uh, do more for poverty per dollar than the other bills, which would seem on their face potentially to do more for poverty, is that people who are renting are much poorer. Um, and as such, you can target renters because they are a sympathetic class in a much more direct way than these other bills, which end up having to do a lot of middle class benefits because if you're going to have any political uh, – 
potency whatsoever, you need to have a different you need to have a different income structure there. So I think there's a lot of interesting things going on here that are saying uh, things that we should be paying attention to about what the various Democrats believe the politics of poverty are. But I would like to see more than a bunch of bills like anti-poverty strategies. And uh, to me, one of the big questions that this whole thing raises, more than any individual one of these uh, pieces of legislation, if a Democrat won the presidency, is poverty really what they would prioritize? It would would they come in and they would spend their political capital initially on a massive anti-poverty plan or whatever it might be called? Uh, you know, I think if it were Sherrod Brown, a lot of this would be would be framed as bringing dignity back to work, where dignity is more, you know, among other things, defined as uh, a, a living wage. But. Is this where the Democrats are going to put their energy or not? I mean, we were talking about uh, Kamala Harris's uh, Medicare for All uh, discussion uh, a couple weeks ago in the weeds. And something Matt noted is that in her interview, she had said she would prioritize the LIFT Act, not Medicare for All. Um, I mean, she would like to do Medicare for All, too. But what she would do first is the LIFT Act. And so it's a really big deal if the Democrats are going to make anti-poverty proposals or rewarding work proposals or however they end up framing it. Like that strategy is the first thing they do. Um, and then they build it into a bigger strategy than this. And I, I guess to me, when I read these kinds of big, in some cases, dangerous bills coming out, that to me is a signal being sent that that th this sort of work is being prioritized way much higher than it was in Hillary Clinton's candidacy under Barack Obama. But I, it could also just be smoke and mirrors and they could come in and just do a very normal democratic agenda instead. Let's take a break and then and then talk about exactly that. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great 
point you raise, Ezra, about, you know, not prioritization between these two plans or between these five plans, but between all the different issues that a president could take on. You know, I think the first step towards any sort of policy action is actually thinking through, like, what is it you want to do? Like, when I think back, and I'm sure you remember this, Ezra, to, like, the beginning of the ACA debate, which really started in the 2008 primary, it starts with just, like, a lot of different ideas and plans that are, you know, refined and thought through and then brought it to Congress. And even when you get into, like, the congressional legislating part of it, then there's still more refining that has a lot more to do with, like, going from the aspirational to the actually doable. You know, I think— Were you at Max Bacchus's Prepare to Launch event? I, I was I was not. I, are you good—were you? <sighs> oh, man. I was. Oh. In 2007, oh. Max Bacchus and Senate Finance Committee chair um, had this, like, Prepare to Launch, which is all about preparing for healthcare. But he actually, like, made us all watch a video of the space shuttle launching. That's really bizarre. Um, and that's a healthcare experience, I guess, I'll never have. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> a local <laughs> Montana tradition. I mean, yeah. the thing I'm curious, one of the things you write about in your piece, and so I think a lot of the discussion in the primary right now gets driven by Senator Sanders, you know, folks signing on to things because they feel like they don't want to get outflanked by Sanders. You talk to a lot of these people. Like, what do you think is it what do you think drives them to be working on these anti-poverty plans? I think one thing that was notable about your piece is you actually don't see like a you actually don't see a Senator Sanders contender there. Like this doesn't feel like a space where they're, you know, Senator Sanders comes up with something, the other candidates try and match him. It seems like a space he's not actually like the lead figure. Well, and it's also a space where insofar as he's been playing in it, he's been catching up. That he's he's not a co-sponsor on a lot of these, but he has said that he wants to introduce a big job guarantee bill, which would probably have have major effects on poverty. But he said that after Kirsten Gillibrand endorsed a job guarantee. He said that after Cory Booker introduced an actual bill for a job guarantee pilot. And he hasn't done it yet. And he hasn't done it. Like he said that a year ago and and hasn't done anything about it since. Um, and I think it's easy to forget given the the sort of popular memory of Sanders as as the like substantive lefty challenger to Hillary, how often in all of his speeches he would say like, no one who works should live in poverty. Like no one who 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 works hard for a living should have to like settle for deprivation, that it's still the same like rewarding work. You have to be able to earn your your chits. Welfare reform was a much bigger debate among his supporters than it was around him. I just don't think it the idea of like a universal child allowance is the kind of thing that fits into his set of priorities in the same way. I, I also think there's a curious ideological valence of poverty per se in the American public debate. Because I, I think when you, when you think about a lot of topics, right, like the the free college debate as it's played out in the Democratic Party, it's often the more centrist Democrats who are taking the position like, look, what we ought to do is create small bore narrow programs aimed at uplifting the neediest, right? And the left point of view is that we should be uh, essentially decommodifying or demarketizing an entire category of American life, right? Which is often rebutted by more centrist Democrats by saying that that's wasteful, right? That like in the marketized environment, 
middle class people do generally manage to get to college, and there is no point in doing this, that um, most Americans have health insurance. So we don't need to craft a universal health care program that replaces everything. But then the left view is that like, no, like education should be a social responsibility. Health should be a social responsibility. And so it actually winds up being the left discourse is more focused on at least the perceived problems of middle class people, right? And also on inequality between the masses and the 1%, whereas focusing on the gap between the poor and the middle class is in some ways more of a center thing. And it's and it's interesting in terms of these plans, right, that like Harris's EITC bill, um, while it reduces poverty a lot, is described by her as a middle-class tax cut and, in fact, has large middle-class benefits, right? So in that sense, this is like classic universalism. And tellingly, right, Lift Act reduces poverty the most of any of these plans, but it does not reduce poverty in a particularly cost-effective way, right? right? That's one vision for like how do you tackle social problems in the United States, right? Is do you do really big things that benefit huge numbers of people at the expense of being well-targeted? And then something like Booker's housing bill, or actually Harris has them both, right, is is at the opposite end of that spectrum where I think like the vast majority of Americans would see no benefit from that renter subsidy. Uh, Many middle-class Americans would end up like worse off, right? Like if you live in New York, are employed full-time in the hot takes industry, uh, frequently write about how high housing costs are ruining your life, like subsidizing the poorest renters is going to raise rents, right? right? And then the poor people will get subsidies to match their new increased rents, but like you won't and you're going to be left worse off. And I think I think the politics of that are very dicey. Um, but like in some strict sense, that turns out to be the best way to target poverty. I think the I think the political economy of this is pretty interesting though. I, w- I want to speak up a little bit for Sanders here in, in one sense, which is that I don't know that if he didn't run the campaign he ran in 2016, we have these plans today. So I, I think it is I think the way Bernie Sanders's approach to the world goes is basically he is patterning a lot of his bills off of the idea that we should build a European style social welfare state. And so he looks around like the biggest thing they have that we don't is a national health care plan. So it's like that is his really big thing. But there are a bunch of others going on down the line um, that, that he's interested in, too. And, you know, I think like that's very much like Bernie Sanders has been in politics for a long time. Like if you look at sort of liberal social democratic style folks from like the 80s or, you know, the, the much of the 90s, like he was there and he's kind of still there. But this sort of like the cash transfer revolution is a little bit of a later thing. And so it's not quite in his cosmology in the same intuitive way. But because he created this view that the Democratic Party wants big things, big plans, I don't think he'd probably oppose a bunch of these bills. But I think it is exactly because he didn't have one that some of these candidates who were looking forward to 2020 and thinking, what can I go big on? And what can I be the the, the leader on? Looked at these. And I don't know that it's such an ideological difference 
between him and them so much as actually he left space open but had clarified that the market wanted big things. And so you have these candidates rushing into the space very, very rapidly. So, you know, would he – I could totally imagine him, say, endorsing the the Bennett Brown universal child allowance. I, I bet if you ask Bernie Sanders about universal child allowance, he'd be for it. But in some ways, I think there's this kind of interesting play for everybody to find a thing that they can now be the biggest player on. And the, the ones here that I think sort of don't fit that, that are really just like of this era and of this moment and of the places their um, sponsors come from are the, the rent and, and in Warren's case, the housing bills, which I just think are a, a, you know just dealing with things that are specifically going on right now and particularly in like Boston and Jersey and, uh, and for Harris, particularly the Bay Area. Uh, but I, I think that if Bernie Sanders had had one of these plans, we might not be seeing this rush to them. It's because he didn't that we are. I would also say that one thing that Bernie got right about the politics is that you have to be able to tell people what you're giving them. That he will give you free health care. He will give you a free college education. Um, And even looking at something like the LIFT Act, like middle class tax cut makes sense because it's just hard to explain what it is otherwise. Like like if you if you if you go to a rally and you're like, I'm going to give you all six thousand dollars, probably there's like a phase out chart. <laughs> like if you're at this section of the trapezoid, you'll get less. And if you're at the other end, you'll also get less. But like the top, the plateau <laughs> is like six. And the, I think the thing that's smart about the Bennett Brown bill and would be smarter if they got rid of the phase out for rich people, which saves a little bit of money, but not that much money and makes it harder to explain is that they can go around and just say, like, if you have a young kid, we're going to give you 300 bucks a month in a check in the mail. And that's a like very, very easy, very, very clear pitch to voters. Well, I think it's also instructive to look at how other countries have handled this. And like we were chatting about this the other day, Dylan, that if you look around the world, if you look even at Canada, they recently implemented a child tax credit pretty similar to Bennett Brown. And it, it does seem in a lot of ways both logistically, like you're saying right now, we have this like mess of a tax code that like gives you some help if you have a kid and like really confusing, murky ways uh, that it seems like one of the most, one of the longer standing plans you looked at, but also one of the more straightforward and one where we see like other countries doing this and just seeing like huge drops in child poverty in Britain and Canada. Like if you look at how our peer countries have looked at this like set of things they could do, they seem to like go towards something Bennett Brownish. Right. Well, I also think it does, you know, it makes a difference both politically and substantively in terms of like, what are you giving people help for? Right. And in effect, like one one approach is give people extra help if they have extra children. And the other approach is give people extra help if they are located in a high cost of living metro area. And Anything you do, like somebody is going to complain. Like I had somebody in my Twitter mentions being like, why don't you don't have kids if you can't afford them, right? Which, okay, fair enough. But I think that like the pushback, like, no, we need to help families with children has a much more like intuitively compelling logic to it than we need to help families who happen to live in the New York City metro area. Um, like, among other things, we have a geographically dispersed congressional representation and, like, having children occurs everywhere. Uh, but also, like, to say that, like, we as a society aspire to a world in which people who want to have children can have children and those children do not grow up in poverty um, is, like, you could write that speech really well versus, like, we aspire to have a society in which uh, – 
everybody can move to New Jersey. It's like, you know, like, like why would you do that, right? <laughs> and from a certain technical analysis standpoint, you can just look at these as like, well, what is the impact on poverty? But like in terms of what are you saying you are trying to to do here? It's different. And again, because like there are other dimensions to housing policy on the supply side, right? Like if you want to tackle the housing problem, I would say, right, like America has a problem of poor families having too little income, right? And that like both EITC and child allowance address that problem. And then separately, America has um, housing scarcity in certain places and that there are ways you can address that. But to sort of like mishmash it together as a, as a rental subsidy, it's like both politically hard to explain unless you're talking to Californians. But I think it's also like substantively wrong that like the housing subsidy bills would not do much to particularly Harris's housing subsidy bill would not like increase the amount of homes very much. I also want to note you could really write that universal child allowance speech well if you're running against Donald Trump who inherited a million dollars from his dad and then employed all of his children for life. Thinking about plans that would actually work in the political economy of 2020, like that is a particularly good one. Let's take our second break, but because I, I think we should talk about the sort of the long shadow of welfare and like why Democrats have been shying away from this. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard, but with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20 minute full body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So like Sarah was saying, right, like when we look internationally and we're like, why is America's child poverty rate so high compared to other countries? The answer really comes down to like child support. 
payments, right? That like everybody else does this. The United States doesn't. And the reason for that is that we used to have a sort of stingy, very sharply means-tested form of a child allowance known as aid to families with dependent children. It was became very unpopular. Uh, Bill Clinton made getting rid of this an important political move. And then Democrats took the lesson away from this uh, through to the people who served in the Obama administration that like, look, America wants to help low-income families, but you cannot provide cash benefits to people who aren't working, right? And that's what, in effect, the universal child allowance would be doing. Right. Is it would be not bringing back old time welfare because in some sense working people would get it, too. But in terms of its its net impact, it's like this would be welfare. You could be not working, have kids and the government is giving you a check. Right. Right. And there's some important differences that I think change the political economy somewhat. So one is FTC, depending on when you're looking at it, either had a 75 percent or an 100 percent phase out rate. So that means if you're on AFDC and you get a job, every dollar you earn from that job takes away from your AFDC check. So like no one got jobs because why would you? Um, whereas with uh, with the child allowance, there is a phase out for people making over like $100,000, but it's very gradual and just sort of adds to their general already somewhat higher uh, marginal tax rates. So that's one big difference. And I think another thing is is that because of that, you're including the middle class. And so we had a public image of welfare mothers uh, that was wildly racist and sexist and unfair in many ways. And also kind of ironic in that the reason there were those high phase out rates was that like the point of the plan was to get women to be single mothers because they didn't want women working. <laughs> and then when social mores around women working changed over a few decades – that started to become a bug of the program rather than a feature. But there was like a specific class of low-income people who were AFDC recipients. Child allowance recipients are like everyone. Like parents in the Vox office would be child allowance recipients, um, doctors, lawyers. And, and that changes our image of who benefits in a similar way to the universality of Social Security changing our, our sense of who benefits. But so that's it's a reinterpretation, right? Democrats embracing this idea is a reinterpretation of what had gone wrong before, right? That like if you asked the Obama administration's economic team, like what do they think about life? They would have said the lesson of welfare reform is that you cannot give cash benefits to non-working people. It was like what Dylan is saying is that the lesson of welfare reform is that you can't give cash benefits exclusively to non-working people, right? And, and there's always been this interpretive difference because the Clinton people, they would say that like, well, Medicaid like was okay, right? And their mental account of that was that Medicaid was in kind, uh, whereas uh, AFDC was cash. But another way of putting it would be that like, even though Medicaid does phase out, it doesn't phase out in that same way. It's not like if you go from unemployed to minimum wage job, you lose the, the Medicaid there, right? And then you've seen a separate thing, which is that like Republicans have not agreed with Democrats that Republicans would only criticize cash programs um, and have been putting work requirements on Medicaid everywhere, right? Yes. Yes, they have. They have not agreed on that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think it gets like an interesting question of these 
proposals, both like policy wise and politics of like, do you want to make this something that is targeted to a specific group of people or do you want to go universal? And I think it's where you see a split on like a ton of policy issues, you know, where you see the kind of more Sanders side of go universal on most things. And, you know, when I've talked to him about this, particularly in the healthcare space, his view is, you know, it's not worth the bureaucrat. It, it, it is interesting to ask him, you know, because after hearing him rally against the millionaires and the billionaires, like, well, why should the billionaires get free health care? Shouldn't they have to kick in something? And, you know, the answer I've gotten for him, at least in the healthcare space, is that, you know, it's a question of equality, that this base level thing should be the same for everybody. And also, you know, there is, I think, a serious concern around bureaucracy when you're, like, trying to sort out both in the tax code, both in, like, how you structure copayments or deductibles. You end up putting a lot of work into the um, into the figuring out of, like, who qualifies for what and, like, the different sort of formulas for phasing in and phasing out. But it's an interesting question. You know, universal programs, they are going to cost more. They are going to have benefits going towards people who are, you know, already better off. And maybe that is the thing you need to do to make them more appealing to a broader population. But that's also a trade-off of, you know, those benefits could be going to someone else who, you know, might arguably have more need for them. So let me push back on that very mildly. So one way to that you can think about the means tests in a lot of non-traditional programs is that they're a kind of tax. They're a tax localized on people who would otherwise qualify for this program or people are starting to not qualify for this program. And I think when you talk, not necessarily to Bernie, because I, I don't know how much detail he's thought about this in, but like people close to Bernie, they would say, yeah, you can have those taxes or we could just raise taxes, period. And so Bill Gates isn't getting free health care from us. He's getting free health care in exchange for much higher taxes and is almost certainly way worse off as a result of that. And I think that's fair. And, and there's something a little artificial about the distinction between the money you raise by mean testing and the money you raise by raising taxes. I just think a big part of this that, that we have to kind of be blunt about is that the welfare backlash was very racialized. I mean, we're we're saying it here in terms of, you know, was it about people who were working versus people who were not working? But the welfare mom's stereotype was about black women. It was about, you know, like right. Josh Levine is about to bring out this great book about the whole myth of that, of like the, the welfare mom driving the Cadillac and like what was really behind that and who was that person actually and like what do we know about her. But there's a bigger – like I, I think a, it, almost more important in, in that interpretive fight than is it about people who are working versus non-working is does it get um, in a racist way racialized? Uh, you know. And so one thing I think you're seeing here is that the idea that you could call this a – not just call it, it would be a universal child allowance is that the operative unit who it is benefiting is children. If the program began to be seen as a program that was fundamentally for, even if it wasn't racialized, right, but just like non-working people who had a lot of kids and it was like a way for them to buy stuff for themselves, a program wouldn't work. But to the extent it's seen as a program for children, it's much more sympathetic. I think you've got a similar thing with Cory Booker's universal child wealth benefit, um, which Sarah Sarah did a great piece on a while back, which also has this quality of giving a, a, a big asset package to basically like every kid. Um, under a certain income threshold, but the idea is like they only get to use it when they turn 18. So it clearly benefits the child. Like he's pushed that as a racial wealth gap solution, though it is in fact a colorblind policy. But it's pretty clear too that it is a way of sidestepping this issue of like how do you how do you 
kind of help protect these kids without falling into some of the some of the older traps of welfare. So I do think part of the broad way you have to like think about these topics politically is also just like has the political um, world in which they'll be received, has the media in which they'll be talked about changed? You know, has the Democratic Party changed? Because the Democratic Party, much of it was very open to the racialized welfare stereotypes. I mean, the 1990s New Republic was a very influential Democratic Party media outlet, but it was extremely bought in on, on furthering that stereotype in, I think, a pretty noxious way. And so, you know, I think there's some, some part of this here that is just like also a bet that a party with you know Barack Obama and Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, a party that has so many more non-white voters, a party in this more woke era, can make a different argument and win that argument in a way the previous Democratic Party um, either did not or could not. It's also a strategic interaction. So like one thing that's happened is non-cash benefits have also become racialized. Like right. go back and watch Fox yeah, News segments about about food stamps, about Medicaid, about Obama phones. That's an in-kind benefit. Um, even CNN had a lot of like really messed up coverage of, of food stamps um, along those lines. And they had some non-racialized stuff as well. Fox News did like many days on this one surfer in California who got food stamps um, as though that's representative at all. But I think there is, as with healthcare, I think a lot of the lesson of the ACA for people on the left was if we try to accommodate conservatives, they will not show us any quarter. And... Similarly, I think the lesson of welfare for a lot of folks is they will race bait this and uh, and demagogue about people not working for literally anything we try to do for poor people. That said, I, this, again, is one thing where I think that the housing benefit idea stands apart from other approaches in that, um, well, uh, of course, all of these policies are formally race neutral. A housing benefit tied to local rent levels would actually very disproportionately direct money to non-white people relative to their incomes, right? And while it would, I think, would be dumb for Democrats to shape their policy agenda around appeasing Republicans, it's clear that Democrats do, in fact, need to shape their policy agenda around appeasing uh, Midwestern voters if they want to win, like, elections. And a benefit that would give a lot of help to California, but very little help to Wisconsin, but that then would concentrate the help that it does give to Wisconsin in Milwaukee seems like really unwise, right? Like not like a bad idea exactly, but like if you were going to take something off your menu of policy options, something that is neutral across geographies um, is a just seems like a way, way kind of better idea. And and the EITC benefits in particular, you know, the appeal to this, because I think you can't say, well, we have this question about working versus not working, and then we have this question about racialization, because like specifically the racialized suspicion, right, is that like, quote unquote, those people don't adhere to our values and will take advantage of the system to coast. Whereas if you offer a benefit that to get the benefit, you need to go work, you know, like that, it salves a concern that people have. And the child benefit is like in between on that, right? Like the image you want people to have when you talk about child benefit is of a middle class, lower middle class, working class family that 
has kids, you know, they they have jobs, but they're like struggling with the diapers and everything else. Like kids are really, really expensive and we're going to give them a helping hand. But then that helping hand, it turns out, is going to be generously offered and not like making you do 12 forms and 18 different kinds of work requirements. Um the question becomes, like, how well does it hold up when you get stories that, like, yes, are going to be probably cherry-picked of either non-white people or else, like, weird white hipsters? You know, people who are somehow not conforming and are, like, getting this check and not participating in mainstream bourgeois society, right? And, like, that's that's the appeal of EITC is that, like, you need to, like— go do the thing that middle class people are also doing. I think I mean, it'll be an interesting question how candidates talk about all this, too. Like when, you know, I've talked to Cory Booker about his baby bonds proposal. He's he very running in the primaries. He is very <laughs> explicit on like he. this is a policy to close the racial wealth gap. You know, he he <laughs> talks about this and there's decent research now that Dylan's written about that it actually would go a long way towards that. And that is a decision he is you know, made to discuss his policies in those terms. You know, I don't think we've seen that really with the anti-poverty. I haven't even seen him talking about his, you know, other about his like um, housing policies in the same sort of terms. But that is a decision to be made regardless of the research that Dylan writes about that shows, you know, you could see one world where Cory Booker rolls this out. It's about giving everyone like a fair shot and building wealth. Don Matthews like writes a story. Oh, look, this thing happens to close the racial wealth gap. But that's, you know, not the world we're living in. It's one where he's explicitly saying, this is why I want to pursue this policy. Um, and I think we'll see how other candidates want to navigate that. Right now, he's the only one I've really seen bringing this out in a way I, I haven't seen other candidates right. talking about. And, and you you saw this a little bit with the ACA. You know, here and there, it would be talked about as a program that would, um, you know, be something that would help minorities because minorities tend to have higher rates of uninsurance. But it was never to this explicit level, you know, that Cory Booker talks about his baby bonds policy with. Yeah. Somewhat uh, of a tangent from that, but I do wish that the conversation about how to do Medicare for all would talk a little bit more about poverty because I think there are ways to do it that can address poverty effectively, but the default option is probably going to leave poor people worse off. So you saw this in Bernie's 2016 plan that one of the things Ken Thorpe, the health economist who evaluated it, found was that because it was adding all these new payroll taxes for people at the bottom who currently get Medicaid – they're like strictly worse off paying thousands more dollars a year. That's not inevitable. Like if you would design that carefully, you could get around that. They just didn't design that plan carefully. But at some point, you have to design the plan carefully so that you're not making poor people on Medicaid pay more in payroll taxes and generally just like find themselves financially worse off so that you can create this big new middle class benefit, which I support and like think would be a good idea. But like the details matter for poverty outcomes. Well, and that's one of the ways in which um, I, I don't want to get into one of these, you know, you can't agree to anything to agree to everything. Obviously, people will pass bills and those bills will do some things and not all things. But it, it's why in some ways you would want things to operate as part of a coherent, like strategic framework for poverty and, and other elements of even, you know, from, from that part of the party, social democracy. You, there's a lot going on in the Green New Deal, and like we will devote a future episode to it. But one thing I think that it is trying to say is that 
all of these different priorities in the Democratic Party need to be seen as part of a, a cohesive package. And while the Green New Deal does not describe really how they will fit together or how they will be done, it is trying to create a framework that you can then fill in with those details and people can people can debate them. And it may be that the way you want to do Medicare for all is with um, broad-based taxation. That is how a lot of European countries do it. But then they also have other things like universal child allowances or other kinds of transfer or work support programs that, that can help on the overall. And so if you end up – like if the only thing you can do as a Democrat in 2021 or 2022 – and this is would be totally like more than almost anybody's ever gotten done is Medicare for all. Like then there's this really big question of like, can you also use it to address poverty? And even if you can't do that, can you at least make sure it doesn't make poverty worse? But if you're thinking about things as part of an agenda and a framework, and you can have Medicare for all and a taxation approach to it that makes sense, but you also have a universal child allowance or some one of these big EITC plans or the renter plans or whatever else, then things can kind of net out over their kind of entire approach, um, which just allows you to be a lot more, I think, thoughtful with the policymaking versus like trying to cram too much into a policy that is meant to do one thing and now has to do a bunch of other things. But that really gets into this question of like, how much can the political system absorb? Like, is this going to be a reconciliation bill? You know, what, you know, what is the actual opinions of Democratic legislators? It gets, the more you add on to it, the harder it gets, but also the more you add on to it, the more tools you have to make sure things work out in the long run. Well, and I mean, this makes me think when I think of it like as a framework, the one thing that feels like it's kind of conspicuously missing from the anti-poverty, like growing democratic agenda is some kind of child care item. It's, you know, Katha Pollard had a nice piece in The New York Times on the cover of their Sunday review yesterday, kind of making the case for national, um, you know, instead of free tuition for college, why don't we have free tuition for daycare? And it still is kind of stark to me as I see like, all these anti-poverty plans roll out that you haven't really seen childcare become any significant part of that agenda. Like, you know, I think, you know, kind of thinking back to your comments earlier, Ezra, about Sanders leaving an opening here and these candidates rushing in to fill it. I think, I hope someone's going to rush in to fill that one. But, you know, that's another key element, you know, I think of when we think of supporting renters, like another way you could be targeting this type of support is with some kind of support for the provision of child care, whether that's through public child care, subsidies for child care, paid leave. Like there's a lot of different ways to get at that policy intervention. But it's still kind of striking to me that it hasn't really become a key part of this debate quite yet. Hillary Clinton had a child care subsidy. Yeah, that within the Democratic Party, like that was the way the Hillary Clinton team explained internally and to reporters and to some degree even externally, like what their big idea was. And like, I remember being in meetings with them, like talking like, you know, what is a big policy plan? And them like kind of like yelling at me that like paid leave and child care, like, these were big plans, but it wasn't being seen as such because, you know, like men in the political system and in the media were not treating them as that as as kind of the equal of some of the things that, say, a Bernie Sanders would say or even a Donald Trump would say. Um, and right or wrong on that, I do think that one thing that has happened in the Democratic Party after Hillary Clinton's loss is a sense that those plans are not do not activate enough of the base and they are not where the kind of ideological energy in the party is. And so people do not seem to be picking them back up. I'm sure 
sure you will have like paid leave endorsed in you know candidate plans and it will be out there um you know and people will will say nice things about it but i, I do think hillary clinton is again rightly or wrongly because her campaign had other issues but is seen as having at least tested the proposition of could you generate a lot of energy on a pro-family set of policies and the answer people have come out of on the other side with that is no that you know for whatever reason american politics is much more interested in healthcare for all and big cash transfer programs than it is in you know universal pre-k or um paid family leave well i would also say though i mean the notion that the american voting public is really interested in um like housing subsidies and stuff like that is, is an untested proposition. <laughs> I mean, what, we, what we have is a weeds Absolutely. episode. I, 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 I would actually say that there was a broad similarity, right? Which is that like what Katha's op-ed said, right, was like imitating the excitement that has been generated around free college for everybody. There should be a government guarantee of free childcare for everybody. I think it's possible that had Hillary Clinton said that, we would have had a lot of discussion around it. What Hillary Clinton actually said was that there should be a tax credit policy that would cap daycare expenses at 10% of your income. Boom. (laughs) And it was not great. Like, it it, it doesn't roll off the tongue. Um, And, like, they didn't... They didn't really have a clear explanation of how that would work even. I mean, not that Katha Pollitt had a clear explanation of how her idea would work, but at least having read it, I understand what her idea like is and you can you can picture it, right? And w- one of the things that you see in right it, it, Democratic Party thinking, we've seen a shift from like Clinton Obama was all about means testing to keep headline tax levels low. Right. And there was also a lot of focus on indirect subsidy versus direct public provision. And what you're seeing now is Democrats busting some of those chains out, right? And saying, we want universal programs, even if it's going to be expensive. And then we maybe don't talk about how we deal with the fact that it's expensive. And we are more open to direct public provision, right? So, like, the free college plans do not subsidize private college attendance at all. Right. They're focused on the state university system. Um, And an interesting question would be, right, like, could you get interest in public provision of childcare services, right, rather than a some kind of voucher or tax credit type system? Um, Because particularly as long as you're in the world of tax credits, the child allowance seems like a directly superior idea, right? Like with money, you could go to daycare or you could buy diapers or you wouldn't need to like fill out 12 government forms as to like exactly which child-related expense is this money for because like it's just a bunch of stuff. But I think this gets back to Ezra's point. It's like not an either or, right? Like yeah. if you, I think if we did some big package, like you'd see those things working Together, right? Um, because I think childcare is often significantly more expensive than any of the child tax credits we're talking about. Right, right, right. And I mean, I don't think you've quite heard. I feel like in in the Democratic field, you're now starting to see like maybe a couple moderate choices, and you of course have like Bernie holding down the left flank, and then you have these candidates who are like from the mainstream of the party, but are like chasing left energy, but they are often not talking in these, like, super broad conceptual terms that, like, make it 
incredibly clear, like exactly what it is they're trying to to say about all this. Whereas like, I feel sure, right? It's like, if you ask Bernie, it's like, should we have, you know, steeply discounted childcare centers like they have in Sweden? He'd be like, yeah, fine, Matt. <laughs> you know, because like that's because like his answer to everything is yes. Right. And so I wouldn't infer from the absence of a bill that his answer is no, whereas I just like don't I don't really know. Like, I don't I don't think it's totally clear until we like do the next six months of the campaign. Like, is the meaning of Cory Booker's uh, like baby bonds and housing allowance bill that like he is against a dramatic EITC consumption, or is he just trying to find a couple things that can like have Cory Booker's face on top of them on the chart? But you know where it's going to be a good place to follow the next six months of the campaign on specifically these issues? Slate. <laughs> Dylan's not allowed back this on the show. Dylan's not a host. <laughs> I would say like Vox.com, uh, Vox, uh, Vox the Media Weeds Podcast, The Weeds Facebook Group, like all kinds of places. The Weeds Podcast, I've heard good things about. Yeah, it's good. It's a good podcast. It's okay. um, so yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> keep on tuning in to all of our many products uh, for continued updates. Thank you, Dylan, for coming in and uh, talking about this stuff with us. Thanks, of course, to our producer, Jeffrey Gelb, and The Weeds will return on Friday. 